0: Uh, good morning, everyone. I hope you did enjoy your Thanksgiving. I enjoyed mine. Uh, if you're new here, maybe we haven't met before, my name is Tony Boscarino, one of the pastors here at Riverview. And today we are finishing up our series on gratitude. We've been walking through this series the last few weeks looking at an attitude of gratitude. like What it is, what it looks like, how to get it, And actually today, I'm going to wrap up our series by talking about how to kill it. How do you kill gratitude? That's what we're talking about. And obviously, I actually don't want to kill off gratitude in any of our hearts, but I found that sometimes looking at what not to do can be as helpful, if not more helpful, than simply looking at what we need to do. Because sometimes we learn best by looking at the mistakes that other people have made or the issues that other people have faced. And this is my heart this morning, because we're going to look at one ungrateful man in the Bible to see if any of his traits are in our lives that might actually be stealing gratitude from us. And so that's where we're going to go, okay? Before we do, (laughs) let's pray. Thank you. Heavenly Father, Lord, in the name of Jesus, God, I just pray right now in this moment, God, that you would soften our hearts to you and to your spirit, what you want to do and say to us. God, give us eyes to see truth and a heart to receive it. And Lord, um, I thank you that you're good, gracious Father. You desire for us to see the blessings that you bring into our lives, and I pray that you would just have your way in our hearts, God, that we would have grateful hearts full of gratitude towards you and that you do whatever in us needs to be done so that that's possible. God, I also know that if it's just my words speaking, no one's life is going to be transformed or changed, and um, that's what I'm after. You're the only one that can do that. So Holy Spirit, just speak through me today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Luke chapter 15. That's where we're going to be today we're going to be looking at what is often called the parable of the prodigal son. But we are not so much going to be focusing on the son that ran away as much as on the older brother. But as is often the case with family dynamics, the actions of the younger siblings can sometimes elicit some pretty strong reactions from the older siblings, right? So, In order to understand the older brother, we first have to look at what the younger brother did. If you're not familiar with this story, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is talking to a mixed group of people. He's talking to a group of people that's composed of tax collectors and sinners, and also Pharisees and scribes, like the religious elite. Essentially, he's talking to people that know that they've messed up, And he's talking to people that don't think that they're so messy and don't want to look at their own sin. He's talking to both groups. And his plan is to convey the true heart of God to both of these groups of people because neither one of them understood it. So let's dive in. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 11. It starts like this. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, we have to realize right at the outset is how insulting this would have been to the father in that culture. Because think about it. When do you get your inheritance? When someone dies. That's the only time you get an inheritance. And to ask for an inheritance while someone is still living is essentially to say, I wish you were dead. When the younger son asks this, he is rejecting the relationship that he has with his father. He's saying, Dad, I want your money, but I do not actually want you. So by his request, he's actually precluding himself from any future dealings with his father or his father's estate. What he's doing is saying, I'm taking my money, I'm leaving, and I'm never going to come back. Now, the father's decision to actually give him the inheritance is amazing. His decision to give away a part of his own estate to a son who obviously does not want him or love him at all is incredible, and it reveals the gracious, generous heart of the father and also his willingness to permit people to go their own way. So let's see what happens. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So he wastes no time, gets together everything he has, and like heads off to Sin City and blows it, just blows it all. He wastes everything. And then verse 14, let's see what happened. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This is a super sad picture. Like, he was a man who came from a good family. He had a good, loving father who cared for him and provided for him. To now, sitting in this place, he has nothing, and he's working with pigs. And if you don't know, working with pigs would have been the lowest of the low for this guy. Jesus' original audience would have understood this in such a different way than us because pigs were unclean in that culture. The Jews were not to be around them, so essentially he is forced to do the most humiliating, dirtiest job possible. It's as my friend says, the guy hit rock bottom and went to buy a shovel, right? That's where this guy is sitting. He is so hungry, and he's longing to eat the pig slop, Like many of you maybe grew up on farms or around pigs, but if you want to eat the stuff that's just being shoveled in there, you're pretty desperate. So let's keep going. Verse 17. But when he came to himself or came to his senses, as some of your Bibles might say, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? So he's poor He's hungry, he's sad, and it's just like his mind drifts towards better times. He's thinking about his dad, his home, and he remembers, man, everybody that works for my dad, they have more than enough food. So he makes a plan. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is his plan. Now remember, he's in a far-off country, so he has a long journey home. And I can just picture in my mind, I just picture him like practicing this speech all the way home, trying to get it right. Like, Father, forgive me. Father, I'm sorry. Father, I'm not worthy. Let, let, me, let me just work for you, please. I just imagine in my mind him rehearsing it over and over again, hoping that if he could say the right thing, then maybe... His dad would let him work for him. Verse 20, he goes to his dad. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Don't miss the father's heart here, which is God's heart for us. The father sees him while he is still a long way off. How do you typically see someone when they're a long way off from your house? Well, it's because you are looking for them. You are scanning the horizon, hoping that you're going to be able to see them. Like it reminds me of my sister and I when we were little kids, and we loved our grandparents, and when they would stop by, we would just be like sitting by the window, trying to see if they're coming down this long road that they were coming. This is the Father's heart for His Son, and also God's heart for us too. I just imagine in my mind, the father just getting up and looking down this long road that his son had taken to leave home, hoping that one day he would actually walk back. And it also says he felt compassion. The specific word in Greek for compassion here, it means to be moved in one's bowels. I've talked about that before, but what it means is like such a deep, deep emotion. It's not, he's not pitying his son. He's not like, oh great, he's back. It's just like he sees him, he's like... I, just, I love him, and it moves him. It moves him so much that he runs out to his son. He runs out to him, and he embraces him, and he kisses him. Like, just think about that scene. The son hasn't even got out his apology speech to his dad yet, and his dad is just, like, bear-hugging him and kissing him. It's not at all what the son was expecting. And I just imagine, you know, the son being swept up by his dad, and he's just like... <laughs> You know, like being hugged and kissed and what, what am I supposed to do here and so he, doesn't, he just goes back to his plan I'm going to go back to what I decided to say verse 21 and the son said to him father I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son but the father said to his servants bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it Let us eat and celebrate, for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now catch this. Like, he gets out his speech to his dad, But it's almost like the dad is not even listening. He doesn't respond at all to the son. The first thing he says, he starts talking to the servants. And he's like, get the robe, get the ring, get the shoes, light the barbecue. We're going to have a party. Like he is overjoyed that his son is back. It's awesome. This is what he's been waiting for. And what he specifically asked for for his son is significant. So first of all, he puts the robe on. And the robe is restoring honor to his son. His son came in as a wretch. He had absolutely nothing. And now he covers him with the robe. And then he puts the ring on his finger, which is kind of the sign of authority that he is now back within the family. He's the son of the guy who owns the place, right? He has that now. And the shoes are significant too because slaves went around barefooted. Free men wore shoes. What this means when his dad gives him the shoes is that you are not a slave, you are not a slave for me. You don't have to work this off. You are fully restored as my son completely. He didn't have to work it off. His father just gave him that. It's incredible when you think about this. And it's such a beautiful picture of love and grace. It's totally, completely undeserved favor, this loving heart of God. And just hearing this story, And just thinking about God's love for me that I could never be worthy of and could never earn, thinking about that just kind of causes like worship to rise up in my heart when I think about this God that absolutely loves me and receives me back. That is what happens in my heart. But not everyone sees it like that. Verse 25. This is where the older son comes in the picture. Now the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. Remember what we just witnessed was beautiful and amazing and this incredible cause for celebration. But the older brother doesn't see it that way. He has no gratitude in his heart that his brother's not dead. He has no gratitude that his brother's back. He has no gratitude that he has this father who is still loving and gracious to receive his son back. He has no gratitude. But what he does have is anger. He for sure has anger. So let's just stop here for a second. We're now looking at the firstborn son. How many firstborns do we have in the room, by the way? Let's see them. All right. Less than first service. I don't know what that says. That's interesting. Okay, my hand is up in the air. I am also a firstborn. Now, typically, not always, but typically, if you do some research on firstborns, you will find that the firstborn children are the ones who typically want to please their parents. They typically are more responsible, and they tend to feel obligated to do what is right or follow rules. Now, that's true for me, and it seems to fit the bill of this older brother, too. So just put yourselves in his shoes. He knows what his brother did to his dad. He asked for the inheritance, and he skipped town. He knows that this guy has now left him, the older brother, alone to shoulder the weight of the responsibility for the family and the family business. And now he's back, and he just gets a party for coming back? He's like, what the heck? (laughs) he's ticked. He's not going to go in and celebrate. He is angry. He's not going inside. Look back at verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. And here's where the father comes in. His father came out and entreated him. Some of your translations may say pleaded with him or begged him. And that's really the idea here, is that he was so desiring his older son now to come in to celebrate that he was like begging him to come in. So don't miss the fact that the father's response to the older son is the same as to the younger son. The father went out to him. He knows that his older son is like sulking, you know, outside the party. I'm not going in there. And even then, the father loves him so much that he goes out to him too and begs him to come in. The father loves both sons equally. Look how he responds to the father in verse 29. But he answered his father, look not always great to start talking to your dad like that. Look, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, this is the father, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And with the time left, I want to break down this specific section to reveal what was in the older brother's heart to see if any of those things might also be in our hearts, stealing gratitude from us. So, what kills gratitude? Number one self righteousness kills gratitude. Webster's uh, Dictionary defines self-righteous as this. Convinced of one's own righteousness, and then especially check this part out, especially in contrast with the actions and the beliefs of others. And this is definitely what we see with the older brother. I mean, back in 29, he says, many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed you. You know what I hear in there? I hear a heart that is saying, I have done everything right. I did everything right. He says, I'm the one who stayed. I'm the one who worked hard every single day. Like, I'm the good son. I'm the better son. He actually says, I'm the perfect son, because I never disobeyed you, not even once. It's just like that self-righteous definition. He is convinced of his own righteousness, especially in contrast to his brother's actions. And that mindset kills gratitude. He can't be grateful his brother is back because all he thinks about is how much better he is than his brother. He can't be grateful for the love of his father begging him to come in because all he sees and thinks about is the fact that his dad didn't treat him like that. And in his mind, he's the only one who thinks he deserves it. That's keeping him from gratitude. Self-righteousness is blinding. It's blinding. You can't be grateful from the heart because all you see are yourself, is yourself and your actions. That's what's happening with the older brother here. Now, the question for all of us this morning is, is self-righteousness in you and is it killing gratitude in you? And it's a really hard question to ask because self-righteousness is like impossible to see in yourself. And so as I was doing some research this past week, I came across these five signs of self-righteousness And I found them to be incredibly convicting to me, too, um, as we worked through them. So number one, self-righteous people parade their works. This is something Jesus talked about all the time with the Pharisees, the religious elite, the scribes. They were people that they fasted, and they wanted to make sure everyone knew about it. They gave, and they wanted to make sure everybody saw it. They prayed, and they wanted to make sure that everybody heard it. But Jesus says, don't do that. Don't live for the glory of people. Do all those things, but do them solely for your Father in heaven. He is the audience of one in your life, and it's his opinion of you that matters above everything else. So don't look to the glory of others, but just be with your Father. So the question is, do we overly desire others to know what we've done Think about the older son. He didn't just say he served his dad. He added, listen, I mean, he, he didn't just say I served you. He says, for many years I've served you. And he added, I did nothing wrong. I, just, I, I obeyed you completely. It's like he had this cry in his heart. to Dad, I want you to understand everything that I have done for you. I want you to get it. Is that in you? Because honestly, it is in me. Like I know that I sometimes want people to see the good stuff that I do. Um, and the Lord's working with me in that. Number two, self-righteous people are uncompassionate or overly critical of others. A self-righteous person looks at the sins of other people and just can't understand why they can't just get it together and not do that anymore. Like, that's the attitude of a self-righteous person. They by no means can see their own sin. No, they can't see that. But they are super good at seeing it in every other person. Just being like, I don't do that. Why do you struggle with that? Just stop it. Get over it. That's the kind of attitude that is a self-righteous person has. Number three, self-righteous people list their works For those who struggle with self-righteousness, it's like there is this little notebook in their brain where they constantly keep a list of all the good things that they did. And then they just kind of like think about that. They just kind of read it over and over again. Um, And unfortunately, they also make a list for the things other people don't do. Now, when I was reading that, I was kind of convicted because I realized this is something that I personally do. Um, I find myself doing this all the time, specifically in my marriage And I got to tell you, it's not helpful. It's not not helpful. Um, For some reason, I feel like I can always tell you exactly like every chore that I did in our house. I can tell you every bill that I paid, every project that I finished, and I I could tell you a week later what I did last week. It's like I write them down. But it's not just that that's not good, but again, I also want people to know about it, which means I'd like my wife to know about it, which... Is again, not helpful if you're in a marriage. And so this is like an area of my own heart that God wants to work on us in. And as I'm saying things, I also want to just redirect us back to, it's so easy to look at this list and be like, oh, that person sitting next to me, or they're my mom my, my mom and dad, they're all the oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But look at your own heart when we do this too, because I see this in me. Anyone else do that? Number four, self righteous people reject correction. Oftentimes, these people are unteachable. The pride in their heart has made their heart so hard that they can't receive correction. So, how do you handle correction? Can you hear it? Do you receive it? Do you actually invite people into your life for feedback? Number five, self righteous people wallow in self pity. Self-pity is defined as excessive, self-absorbed unhappiness over one's own troubles. And this is exactly what we see in the older brother. He cannot be happy for his brother because he is just sulking in self-pity. He's angry. He's upset. I'm not going into that party. He is unable to be joyful because he is thinking about what he doesn't have and how his brother doesn't deserve this. And I can actually fall into this one, too. Like many of you guys know, I have lots of allergies. There's lots of stuff I can't do, food I can't eat, places I probably shouldn't spend a lot of time in because of animals. And I'm, I'm often so tempted to become like so incredibly self-focused, and it just can easily lead me into like this self-pity. Um, and self-pity is not pretty, um, but I know that I can get there. Might there be any of those self-righteous things in you? If so, we'll share at the end how to deal with it. For now, let's move on. The second thing that kills gratitude is resentment. Resentment is defined as a bitter indignation at being treated unfairly. And again, we see this in the older brother. Look back at verse 29. He answered his father, Look, I've served you, I've never disobeyed you right here. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, who just wrecked everything, he gets the fattened calf. What the heck? The older son is saying this. I don't deserve to be treated like this. I deserve better. This is a resentful heart. Resentment is birthed in our hearts when we feel and believe that we are being treated unfairly. And what's so harmful about resentment is that the more and more that we stew on it, it just builds and builds. It's almost like it takes over our mind and our thoughts and how we react to anyone. It just takes over your whole life when you let it build and when you stew over whatever injustice was done or what you think was done to you. Look at the son's response. He's like, this guy who has taken your money, blown it, brought disgrace on our family, you give him a stinking like t-bone steak, But I never did anything wrong, I never disobeyed you, and you won't even give me a hot dog. You know, like that's the way that I read this. This is what he is feeling in his heart. So, do you want to kill all chance of gratitude in your life? Here's how you do it let feelings of resentment grow and grow and grow in your heart. When I was in seminary, one of the favorite books that I was told to read was The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nouwen, and it's an incredible book, just really insightful. It goes to the, the younger son, the older son, the father. I got so much out of it. But in the book, he writes this. Resentment and gratitude cannot coexist since resentment blocks the perception and experience of life as a gift. My resentment tells me that I don't receive what I deserve. Gratitude, however, goes beyond mine and thine and claims the truth that all of life is pure gift. So, do you look at life and the blessings within it as an undeserved gift? Is that the way that you think about your life? Or, do you often think about what you deserve? People that struggle with resentment towards God are always thinking about what God did not give them. They're upset that they didn't get this job or promotion. They're angry about the spouse that they don't have. Or they're constantly focused on, you know, my house is not as good as somebody else's. And it's almost like their thoughts just go back to, you know, what they don't have or maybe just stewing on what they've lost in life. And those thoughts will always kill gratitude because they keep you from seeing the goodness of God in your life. You can't be grateful and have a heart of gratitude if you can't see the blessings. Look back at the last section of scripture. The older son is angry, slaved away for his dad for years, and he gets nothing. He he sees his dad as this angry slave master who won't even give him a measly goat. But is that the reality? Is that really who his father is? Because look back at the whole story. The younger son asked for his inheritance which is way more than a measly goat and the father freely gave it to him a slave master hard-hearted father would not do that then look at how he goes out to both sons a hard-hearted slave master father would not go out to both of them with that like deep gut level like like love that is just coming out of his soul a hard-hearted you know slave master father would not do that towards both Sons, desiring to be with them. And then lastly, look at verse 30. Look at what he says to his son. He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. A hard-hearted slave master father wouldn't say everything that I have is yours. We can celebrate and be together whenever you want to. If you would have asked, I would have given it to you. If this is really who the father is, which, you know, Jesus is telling this story, so I'm pretty sure that that's who he is, then the real issue lies not with the father, but how the older son sees his father, which leads me to point three. The last thing that kills gratitude is a wrong view of God, which was really the whole reason why Jesus is telling this story in the first place. He wanted to convey the true heart of our Father in heaven to both those that felt like they couldn't be good enough, like the younger son, the sinner, the tax collectors, and also to the self-righteous, judgmental Pharisees, like the older son. He wanted them both to understand the father's heart. But the older son didn't see his father for who he was. He saw him as that slave driver, slaving for him for many years, but he didn't actually get to know him. He didn't know his love. He didn't know his kindness or his goodness. All he saw was rules to follow, When the father really wanted a relationship with his son, that's why he keeps going out to them. The father runs to the younger son. The father begs the older son to come in and celebrate with him. What the father wants is a relationship, and in that relationship, all that the father is and all the father has is available to us. So, how do you see God today? Are you like the older son who sees him as this mean-hearted taskmaster? You kind of always feel pressure to somehow be good enough, but yet you never feel like you can please him. If you see him as a taskmaster, you will always be really just focused on yourself and what you can do. You'll always look for what you don't have, what you think he doesn't give you, and you'll constantly miss the blessings that he provides because how you see and how you relate to God directly um, relates to how much gratitude you feel towards him. So how you see and relate to him directly relates to how much gratitude you feel toward him. So just kind of going over what we shared, there's three things that kill gratitude. Self-righteousness, resentment, and a wrong view of God. Are any of these in your life? As I said, I know that they are in mine. And if you saw in yourselves any of the signs of self-righteousness, all we need to do is just confess that to the Lord and be very specific about it. Like I told you, I was convicted about the self-righteous examples of, you know, making a list and wanting everyone to know about it. So for me, the prayer would be like this, like, God, I know I make lists of every single thing that I do, and I know that I really want just to know what I did please forgive me for that. I know you don't want me to have that attitude in my heart. I know it's impacting my relationship with you. It's impacting my relationship with my wife. God, help me to be humble before you and open my eyes to see who you are and what you're doing. So confess it. Be specific about it. Ask him then to heal your heart and then choose to like go forward like Okay, God, I'm walking with you, walking in humility. And it's really the same process for resentment. If you know that there is something that you just feel is so incredibly unfair in your life and you just stew over it all the time, take this moment to confess it and be specific. Like, God, I hold resentment in my heart because of this situation or what this person did to me or the fact that you didn't give me this and I think I deserved it. Whatever it is, be specific with him. Confess that to him and ask him to heal the resentment, the hardness in your heart because he will and then choose to you know, surrender it and walk out with him and really just ask that he to open your eyes to see actually what he's doing in your life, the blessings that are there. And even just simply the fact that if you have Jesus, you have eternity sealed forever with him, that this life is not all there is. There's a whole eternity with him because of Jesus, and we can always be thankful for that all the time. And lastly, if you maybe think that you're not seeing God accurately, or maybe you don't even know like how you think of God, take his invitation to come in and to be with him. We all need help, every single one of us to be able to see God for who he is. And so the first thing, again, is coming before him, just saying, God, reveal yourself to me. Help me to see who you are. You know, James 4 talks about drawing near to God, he'll draw near to you. Like, God, show me who you are. And if there's any lies that I believe in my heart, bring truth to those lies. I also would encourage you to go through Luke 15 and just read it over and over again. Think about the father. How does the father respond to the younger son? What did the younger son have to do to get the love from his father? Nothing. The father loved him, embraced him, because the son turned back, right? Think about how the father related with the older son, the son who was sulking and self-pity. How did the father relate to him? And then say, God, how do you relate to me? Like, reveal that to my heart I think what's interesting is that the reality is that all of us probably have a little bit of the younger son and a little bit of the older son there's times where we're just like just a wretch just stuck in sin and selfishness and doing our own thing and I'm there there are times where for whatever reason we're just so filled with pride and we just feel like we're crushing it and then all of a sudden we're just like, I'm great and I don't know why other people aren't doing as good as I am. And we start to get really judgmental and critical and I can do that too. Every one of us are in the older son and the younger son. So what we need to do is accept the father's invitation. He comes out to us and then we choose to be with him. What I find is so interesting is that we never really know what the older son decided to do the story just ends right there and i think in that way god is inviting us to choose you know are we going to stay like run, are we going to stay so far away like the younger son are we going to stay in that mess are we going to come back are we going to stay on the outside with this like self-righteous mindset being upset with god or are we going to accept the invitation to come into him the choice is ours let's pray Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I thank you for uh, just your truth and your word. I thank you that it's true. And God, I pray for Riverview that in the name of Jesus, we would be people that read your word. And not just read it, but actually like digest it, think about it. What does this mean about God? What does this mean about who I am? I pray that you would give us that heart. We'd slow down. We'd take your words for what they are and allow your spirit to speak life and truth into our hearts through them. God, I just thank you. I thank you for the gospel, the truth of the gospel, that as Jesus died upon the cross, every sin that we've ever committed was paid for completely, and we didn't deserve it. And as Jesus rose up from the grave... We now stand with this righteousness of Christ forever, a gift that we could never be worthy of. Lord, we thank you for that. God, make that truth more and more known to our hearts. Father, we thank you for who you are. And I just pray that you'd have your way in me, in us, in our church, in our community. I love you in Jesus' name. Amen.